there's a lot of things that people need to be wary of. And it's quite easy to fall into the trap of just thinking that any old commodity is a good commodity in a super cycle. That's not necessarily the case, am I right? No, it's actually not. There's a few, uh, there's a couple that I actually think people should be aware of. In saying that, in the last phase of a bull market, even dud investment decisions tend to go up. It's just, it's the mania that lifts them. You're not a genius. You're just riding the tailwind of a bull market. That's all. But there's a couple, but the thing with commodities is they can fall out of favor really quickly. Markets can turn on a dime. It's like, even though there are, it takes millions of dollars and decades to get these production lines in, sentiment can change quickly. Uh, And a great example of that is. Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the megatrends and opportunities reshaping our world. Good morning and welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. I'm your editor, Sam Volkering, here with my co-editor, Shay Russell. Good morning, Shay. Nice to have you with us again. How's your week been so far? It's been good. It's been a little busy. Uh, I've been working on some things and I I feel like I need a good long sleep. What about you? How's the weather treating you over there in the north? Well, you know all about this and I know all about this because we, you know, come from a land down under and, um, you know, summers are are a bit hot down under. Um, It's been a stinker over here, I will admit. Uh, I think it was 40, 41 degrees, I think it topped out at yesterday and 38 or 39 the day before. Uh, Britain is melting and I'm sure everybody watching has survived, barely, the the extreme heat over here. the headlines are unbelievable, uh, Shay, as you could imagine. Um, uh, uh, climate crisis, heat crisis, um, why this isn't just summer, um, or, although it is. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of nasty stuff. But as I, um, I, I commented on Twitter, and I don't, know, I don't know what it was like for you uh, when you were a kid, but when I was a kid growing up in Melbourne and, you know, summer would roll around inevitably mid to high 30s most of the time. Um, And then on the odd occasion, 40 plus. We weren't even allowed to take our school blazers off on the way to school or Uh. on the the way home from school, unless it was over 35 degrees. So I don't know. It seems like maybe people are a little bit more soft these days. What do you think? Actually, I've got a little bit of science. I'm going to throw at this for you. Um, It's actually worse in the UK. And I'll say that without being there because – your houses aren't designed to let heat out. Your houses no, are actually true. designed to trap heat in, whereas Australian houses are designed to let heat out through the roof. UK houses, um, and I wrote about this on Thursday in Exponential Investor. I clearly you were paying attention. Um, they're designed okay. to actually trap heat in, so there's no actual airflow. So your summers inside are actually more excruciating than Australian summers outside because our houses basically breathe. Yours don't. That's why. It's true. It is. It is very true. And it's like I remember talking about this with somebody recently, and and saying that um, double story houses in Australia, although a little bit more common now, aren't aren't really the norm. Single level or what they call bungalows over here uh, are are much more common because they're much better for for managing heat. Yes. Um, But you know, anyway, as Boris Johnson would say, "Them's the (laughs) brakes." 
It, I, I've got aircon anyway, so I don't give a stuff. I'm Australian and, and summers, I just know, I just figured that summers are always going to be hot in this country and houses aren't built for it, so I've got aircon. And I've written, I wrote about it funnily enough in May, should you buy aircon this summer? Well, I think that that question answered itself this week. But anyway, we're not yeah. here to talk about the weather. No. It's, I, did, look at what you've done. You've turned me into a proper Brit. All I'm here doing is sitting here talking to you about the weather. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Let's get on to more exciting things. Yes. I want to talk to you about commodities because Rocks. you love commodities. And to be fair, I love commodities. We've talked about this before. It's, it's, in, it's in your blood as, uh, as, as someone from, from Australia. So a couple of the things I wanted to, to ask you about today. I get a lot of people that write into us at AXI and, and some of my other publications. And, you know, we try and look for investments, stocks that are, you know, in that sector, metals, mining. I don't look at it as much as you do. Um, but the thing is, is we're always on the lookout for the winners, the good stuff. What's the next big metal going to be that I can make a crap ton of money on? Um, yeah. Which is great. That's what we're here for. We're here to help people make money. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that people need to be wary of. And it's quite easy to fall into the trap of just thinking that any old commodity is a good commodity in a super cycle. That's not necessarily the case, am I right? No, it's actually not. There's a few, uh, there's a couple that I actually think people should be aware of. In saying that, in the last phase of a bull market, even investment decisions tend to go up. It's just, it's the mania that lifts them. You're not a genius. You're just riding the tailwind of a bull market. That's all. But there's a couple, but the thing with commodities is they can fall out of favor really quickly. Markets can turn on a dime. It's like, even though there are, it takes millions of dollars and decades to get these production lines in, sentiment can change quickly. Uh, And a great example of that is cobalt. It's one of the um, commodities that I actually think people should uh, avoid and part of the reason is 60 to 70 percent I can't remember that band come from the Democratic Republic of Congo now this is actually not a, a, a particularly good country to do business with it's huge sovereign risk and yes there are some um, western miners listed there so you've got some UK companies listed there and a couple of Australian and um, American companies list operating from there but even then these companies are having trouble working with the government there's sort of a lot of concessions that are being made now um this is coupled with the price of it is ridiculous it's about fifty-five thousand us dollars per ton down from about eighty thousand us dollars per ton and it's also like 10 times higher than what was what it was three years ago so when it's that expensive and that hard to get and doesn't look good in the esg statements it's right for disruption because it doesn't like you can't greenwash this. You, you know can't. what's interesting? I just quickly jumped onto transparency.org because you know how they have that corruption index? Oh, um, yes. The Democratic Republic, <laughs> Democratic Republic of the Congo, it ranks 169th out of 180 countries. It's worse <laughs> in terms of in terms of the corruption index. Wow, that's what that's it. There's only was eleven more corrupt countries than the DRC. So that, that kind of proves your point. It does, look, it absolutely proves my point, and this is going to make anybody with any technology in front of them feel bad. And I've got plenty of it. Pretty much, um, a lot of the cobalt that is mined that we use has been mined by children uh, in in extraordinarily unsafe conditions. So it's really not something companies, uh, Western listing companies, want to deal with. Um, in that true science, but don't we need don't we need cobalt though? Isn't like cobalt so we're working a, a, a on substitution. part of EVs? 
It is. It absolutely it, it is, and that's the problem. And it's because basically they can't clean up the government. I'm sure there was a bit of you know, let's bring democracy over to the Congo for a bit, but it's not cleaning up the way uh, miners need it to to impress shareholders. So what we're seeing now is increasing um, experimentation with substitution. And manganese Uh is showing promise in this. It's not enough to say we can roll it out, but manganese is proving in most cases that it can replace cobalt. And that goes for about, uh, you know, 3,000 US dollars per tonne. So it's significantly cheaper. It's extremely abundant. And you can find that across many different ore bodies. So it significantly reduces that sovereign risk as well, which is why while cobalt, you know, being it's got everything, you know, when you're trying to um, talk about a great stock, it's got everything that makes a great story. But from an analytical mm. point of view, it's ripe for disruption, especially when big corporations are turning their back on it or increasingly turning their back on it, I should say. Yeah, it's fascinating because you, what you mentioned just there is this, it's a great story, but when you actually dig into the detail, it's its actually quite horrific. a better word to use than that. Um, it's, it's awful. Yeah, it's one of those stories you know, that I makes mean, you uncomfortable to discuss, but we need to be uncomfortable yeah. to recognize where these things are coming from. Yeah, absolutely. So cobalt, that's, that's interesting because there, there are a, a, a lot of a lot of fanboys for, for cobalt uh, yeah, investments uh, out there. But I like that take on it. I like that perspective that you say because, as we all know, whether, whether one believes in ESG investing or not, which is a conversation for another day. Uh, I know. I know. James Early has covered a bit uh, in his uh, coverage of, of things. Uh, if anybody's, by the way, watching, you can, I think on YouTube, go and check out the Early Advantage, James Early's uh, video podcast. But anyway, I'm not here to plug James and stuff just yet. Um, talking about talking about more more things you don't like in the commodity sector. So, okay, we've got cobalt. Is there anything else out there which investors should probably be a little bit more wary of? Oh, look, I'm going to be annoying the fanboys of this one as well. Apart from gold. Apart from gold. I'll I'll stay away from gold for the moment today. I think I can do this. Lithium. I think lithium is too – yeah, it's, it's still very much caught up in the hype cycle of investing. Yes, we need it. Yes, it's important. But, it, you know, for something to grow 500% in price in 12 months, really, can I just point out, this is there, that price growth is based on car manufacturers' targets. It's actually not based on sound science. Yes, we are transitioning to EVs. Yes, there is increasing um, desire for lithium-ion batteries, not doubting that. But there's not really hard science behind it because the data is coming back from people who have a vested interest in telling us that we're going to buy more of these things. Um, The other thing too with lithium is there's plenty of it around in the ground. So much so that years ago it actually used to be a byproduct from mining and companies considered it waste and they paid other companies to come and get rid of it. Um, What we don't have a lot of is shovel-ready projects when it comes to lithium. So companies that are starting to get lithium projects up and running now and next year are going to benefit from this lithium hype cycle. But eventually, once the market catches on that actually we're awash with lithium, we've got plenty of it, I suspect it's going to come off um, pretty hard. Yeah, I've been been reasonably sceptical for a while about the actual demand supply uh, data around, around lithium, that the actual supply that is available and ready to be brought online is far more than than the market's probably making it up i mean you know as as you're well aware there are some big players that dominate the lithium production space like albemarle and they have gotten into it just lately exactly so 
it, you know, it, it, do you know what? It reminds me a little bit of, I can't remember what year it was. Was it 2011? The sort of first or one of the early uh, rare earth uh, boom and busts yeah. where, you know, every little rare earth company in the world was listing and saying they had these amazing deposits. And then as it actually, the hype cycle played out, probably two or three at best actually had workable deposits that they could bring into, yeah. you know, production and, and, and then uh, refining and all of that. So uh, it feels a lot like that. Yeah, it certainly does feel a lot like that. And there's the nuance here as well with like a lot of a copper, iron ore and gold, for example, the the like the metals extracted and it's basically turned into concentrate or dore depending on which product it is. And then it's sent to a refiner. Things with things um, with like rare earths, the real value add is actually in companies that can turn it into the oxides that the market needs on site. Not many rare earth miners can do that. They generally just send it off in a very lumpy form and it goes to China to turn into the oxides mm. that the markets need. So if you're going to get excited about rare earths, do that. They're a marginal business anyway. I know you're not meant to say that, but they are actually a marginal business. A lot of them are propped up by governments for a reason. Um, but the companies that are going to actually benefit shareholders in the rare earth sector are the ones that are turning it into the oxides that the markets need, either on site or that have developed relationships with, um, you know, basically allies for them, countries, you know, countries we're friends with essentially, or we don't have geopolitical risk with that are going to turn it into the, um, the oxides we need. Mm. Um, just something you mentioned there as well is just the way you're talking about how, you know, you sort of I can identify, you know, what to look for with something like rare earth companies. Is there like a, is there like a magic bullet that, a silver bullet that that sort of you look for when you're looking at companies and you're like, it could be across any commodity, sort of where you think, actually, you know what, this is the trigger. This is what I want to see. This is what we need to see to make this a real quality opportunity. So the key word here is downstream. Um, this actually became a okay. bit of a buzzword in Australia at, in around 2019. Um, look, as you know, Australia's good on the extraction business. Basically, we're really good at digging big holes and sending the stuff in the hole to somewhere else to turn it into something yeah, else. I'd be good. Yeah, we're good. We do. Good. We do big holes really well, better than anybody. Um, although the Canadians might fight us on that one. You'd see my backyard. I'd dig great holes. <laughs> I, I wanted to quote the captain. I've been rare earth mining in the backyard. You certainly have. Um, but the key word here is downstream, and that's really what I just mentioned before with rare earths, and that is um, mining is a marginal business. It's not, it doesn't make as much money. Like Yes, miners make money, but it's not a high profit margin business. The high profit margin actually comes in companies who have invested in the plant and equipment and will turn that commodity into a usable form for the market. And the key word for that is actually downstream. So when you see companies talking about investing in the downstream business, that means that they're looking at the certain process it's going to take to turn you know these metals into what the market's inspecting uh, market's inspecting now you would think that I would have a word to throw at you off the top of my head cannot think of one for the life of me I've run out I have not had enough coffee today but the key word here is downstream companies that are investing in the downstream process should cost several several millions and millions of pounds but these are the companies that are looking for the value add uh, the other sneaky thing here about that is governments favor mining companies that are investing in local production. So, um, for example, in the US and in Australia, uh, companies that are spending money on, you know, uh, basically having plant and operating equipment to process these things on site, 
uh, front runners to get a government handout or, you know, instead of a loan, they get a government grant kind of thing. So those are the key, that's the key word that you want to look for because that company that is downstream over just extraction is more likely to get a subsidy from the government. Hmm. Interesting. And we all know that if they're getting some government handouts, they're also more favorable to get uh, the sign-offs on the permits and licenses. We're not meant to admit it, but it's true. true. Yeah, well, we we all know what they're not meant to admit and what they actually do. So uh, all those little things, funnily enough, tied together. Um, That's fantastic. That's, that's, That's great to get a bit of an insight as to some of the areas in the commodity sector to maybe think about. Think twice again. Think twice about. I don't think I've had enough coffee today either. Um, but then also to say, looking for you know those those key things, that keyword downstream uh, when you're looking for investments. I want to throw one more question at you before we wrap up today. And uh, if you had to pick one market, and I, I, I personally I hate it when people ask me these questions, but I don't care because I'm going to ask you. Anyway. <laughs> um, if you had to pick. If you had to pick one stock market to play the commodity sector on, London, uh, maybe Europe, uh, the US, Canada, Australia, wherever, which which do you which do you think right now is probably the most exciting market that's full of you know great commodities investments and opportunities? So I would say Canada, if you've got the stomach for risk, some of the tiniest pink sheety speculative punts can be found uh, listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange. Um, So if you have decided that, oh, you don't, you know, it's just this with money, I think that's a great place for really speculative stocks. A lot of juniors go there to sort of prove themselves. You don't want to go into the Canadian over-the-counter market. Stay away from that. That's just too hard to navigate, especially from the distance. Um, But I think if you are into commodities and you've got the stomach for not only commodity risk, but also currency risk, because odds are that you're not a Canadian, um, I think there's incredible opportunities up there. The other advantage is um, it's a great jurisdiction for mining. Mm. And it's a market that has a lot of private equity money flow into it. There's a lot of cashed up money, a lot of money they're looking for a home. Um, and uh, when it comes to their capital raisings, they don't, they've they generally got to do a capital raising uh, above the actual current market price, whereas in Australia, you can do a capital raising below the current share price. So I think there's a lot of opportunity on the Canadian market, but it comes with big risks, that's all. There you go, folks. You heard it here first. Get your... Um... Get your Canadian markets onto your broker. Make sure your broker's got access to Canadian markets. There could be some some wonderful and wild opportunities, but as as Shay mentioned, full of risk. But full what are risk. we to do apart from look for investment opportunities full of risk? How boring are ones without the risk, okay? Anyway, <laughs> that's what we're here for. We've run out of time today. Thanks, Shay, again, for your wonderful insight into the commodity sector. Uh, love it. You're my, you're my go-to person every, every time I've got questions on this stuff. Thank you, everyone, again, for watching. Um, we'll be back again with you next week with another Exponential Investor podcast. Uh, actually, one more thing before we do go. Now, Shay, I forgot to add this in, and I want to talk to you just very briefly about this. You've mentioned recently that uh, we're looking at a perhaps a commodity super cycle, and you've got a new briefing coming out. Well, I say new your debut briefing for South Bank Investment Research, specifically about, is it Super Spike? Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
So super spike. So the whole premise of it is, is that I believe we are going to see another super cycle. Now, commodity super cycle are actually pretty rare things. There's only been four in the past uh, 150 years. So I believe that we're going to see another one. Uh, and that's why it's being called a super psych 22, super spike 22. I think that's what I've called it. Um, and the whole idea is that there is um, unbelievable underinvestment for decades in the commodity space and yet we're about to go in one of the um, most resource intense transitions our economy has ever seen uh, we've talked about you know we've got the energy transition happening we've got um, uh, we've got um, urbanization industrialization all of these things in order to happen are going to require um, a vast amounts of, um, I couldn't even pronounce the word that I wanted to spit out, so we're going to go with vast, four letters, um, that we need to make this happen. And I think this is going to cause a massive super spike in, uh, spike in prices, uh, simply because we haven't spent enough on making sure there is enough in the ground to make it happen. It's a tale as old as time. It's actually what's caused the past two commodity super cycles as well in the 1970s and in the 2000s. And I actually think we are on the verge of seeing history not necessarily repeat, but definitely rhyme. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating stuff to to see just how quickly that demand and, and those prices can shift uh, in a in a super cycle, as you say, as we've only seen a handful of times before. And if it if it comes good again this time round, which I, I trust in your analysis and, and what you've been telling me about it, it certainly sounds like that could be the direction we're looking at. Uh, things could get absolutely bonkers very fast. And as we mentioned now, Shay, your briefing, I think, is going live on Tuesday. Um, everybody, if you want to check that out. And look, I've known Shay for almost a decade now. I think our anniversary, Shay, is uh, March next up. year. Um, I, I 100%, if, if Shay believes this is what's coming, then uh, this is the kind of briefing that you want to make sure you go and check out. I'll be watching it live on Tuesday. If you want to check it out as well, There'll be links uh, below and or around this video somewhere. Make sure you click on it, get your name down to get access to that uh, VIP landing page where you can get exclusive access to Shay's broadcast when it goes live on Tuesday. So make sure you do that and I will see you there. But again, thanks again for joining us, Shay. Thanks again, everyone, for watching. We'll be back with you again next week with another episode of the Exponential Investor Podcast. Bye for now. 